0: Oh, God's so good, guys. Man, he's good. And You know what? Worship's not done. We're just now opening his word and continuing in worship. But I want us to to keep whatever you feel like was planted in your heart and mind. Because I just feel like God did something in this room, don't you? But you know what? He's never done doing something. (laughs) And so I just want to just keep your hearts and your minds open as we prepare to hear the word. Those listening at home do the same um, we are in our final week um, in the book of Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Um, before we jump in, though, interestingly enough, I didn't I didn't see the connections between all the songs and what we wanted to share today. But that, that is really the part where I want to start. Is for us as the people of God, ha- have we ever wanted so badly to change somebody else? but to realize that we couldn't. Don't look anybody right now. All right? I'll give it away. Or, have you ever wanted so desperately to change something about yourself? Destructive habits, overwhelming emotion, addiction, you name it. But to only find yourself, no matter how hard you tried, that you kept cycling back to the same thing you never wanted in the first place. I have. And the truth, as I, as I look at Nehemiah and as we prepare to finish up this book today, I realize Nehemiah got there too. And I want, us, I want us to see something powerful in this book. But before we do all of that, the last five weeks, we've been walking scene by scene through this remarkable, amazing story of how God uses Nehemiah and his people to rebuild their ruined city. But today, we're not just going to look at one scene of it. What I want to do today is zoom out and see the whole story. And say, as we finish this thing up, say, God, what is it that you want to tell us and show us through the story as a whole? You know, if you remember, it all the book all begins with Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Grieved because he hears about the destitution of the people in Jerusalem. It's his people. And the reason why that grieves Nehemiah so much is because he knows it was never supposed to be that way for Israel. Nehemiah, a man who knew God's word, he knew that long, 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 long before Nehemiah's day, God promised to a man named Abraham, He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you many descendants, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation, and you're going to be a blessing to the other nations. Not a joke. And then as the, as the descendants of Abraham grew that became the Israelites, God delivered them from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he says, and I'm going to show you guys, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, partners of my peace, love, and joy across the earth if you obey me. Then God said to Israel's king David, he says, and from you is going to come an everlasting throne. See, it was never supposed to be that way. That is what God laid out for his people. But as faithful as God was through all of that, what happened? The people of Israel, the people of God, were unfaithful. Over and over and over again. They had seasons where they could stir themselves up to trust God again. But inevitably, they just kept chasing after other gods. And the prophets of God said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, you're committing adultery against God. This, is, this is, You're cheating on Him. And this is a big deal. But as they continued to ignore their voice and ignore the mercy of God, eventually, God said, Guys, I'm going to send you into exile. Why? Why couldn't Israel be faithful? And so eventually God allowed the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and they carted his rebellious people off into exile. But 70 years after that moment, King Cyrus of Persia took over and he allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But when they came back to Jerusalem, it was really just a burned out shell of its former glory. But even still, the people wanted to rebuild. And as they rebuild, eventually in 450 BC, Nehemiah hears about all that is going on in Jerusalem. And he decides he's going to do something about it. And so at this point if you if you're listening to the book of Nehemiah and as we've followed it the last several weeks I hope you've heard this crescendo of hope beginning to build at that point you know you can almost hear the background movie music right the dun, da, 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 right as Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem he says oh I'm going to do something he rallies the people to rebuild the walls despite opposition he stands up to greedy nobles he even he even It reinstates the festival of joy from God's word. Nehemiah doesn't just lead them for an infrastructure change. He brings about political, economic, religious reform. And all the while, everybody's thinking, could this be our turning point? Could this be the moment when finally God does something? Our forefathers, Israelites, were saying they may have turned away from God, but maybe this is the time that things will really change. And we get to Nehemiah, and we read in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, how the people had an all-day worship service where they recommitted themselves to God and said, we are going to be faithful this time. This time will be different. This time we will remain faithful. This time we will win back the land. Until it wasn't. The crescendo of hope that you feel throughout this book. Finally, you get to the very end of Nehemiah and it just sounds like you just let a rhino through the orchestra pit, right? It's It's just nasty. It's not pretty. And finally, Nehemiah, despite all his efforts, realizes the Israelites turn away from God again and Nehemiah completely at the end of himself loses it on them and if we study this book seriously then we can't just look at the good parts of it we got to look at the whole thing especially the ending because Nehemiah tried so hard in his own strength to, to, to jumpstart the people's devotion to God. But like a car with a dead battery, you can jumpstart that thing as many times as you want. But what keeps happening? It just keeps on dying. And so do you see that the end of the story of Nehemiah is meant to leave us as the reader with this lingering question, this tension, Why? Why does this keep happening? Why is it that that, that despite all God did through Nehemiah, the people still can't love God? And the question is not just one for Nehemiah, but it stretches across the entire Old Testament from Moses to David to Nehemiah. God is so gracious and He gives them so many good things. He provides for them. But what is wrong with the human heart that makes it incapable of remaining faithful? And if we are reading this story with an honest heart ourselves, we, do we not see the same thing in us? Like that hymn says, do we not notice, too, how our own hearts are prone to wander? Why? Why? If you're taking notes, despite all human beings can do, we have never been able to master our own heart. So when we zoom out and look at this picture as a whole, this whole story of Nehemiah, the whole story begins with with Jerusalem in a bad spot. And we're thinking, what is ultimately going to fix everything for Jerusalem? And we meet this man, Nehemiah. And by all intents and purposes, it really looks like Nehemiah could be the right man for the job to finally get it done. First, Nehemiah loved God and he loved his people. You remember all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 1 where Nehemiah just prays and weeps saying, God, you got to change something. Second, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia, so he has political connections. He's got the ear of the king. And third, because of that, he has all the quality resources he needs. Fourth, he's a wise and discerning visionary. And when they face opposition, he he proved himself to be a creative problem solver. Who's a savvy leader. Fifth, as if all of that's not enough, after the defense walls are done, he's even a spiritual leader, along with the priest Ezra, guiding the people to recommit their hearts and minds to God. And if you read Nehemiah chapter 9... It says the people gathered together to confess their sin to God. And it says that they they listened to God's word for a quarter of a day. That is six straight hours. Do you guys want that? Does that sound good to you? But they weren't done, right? Like After that, it says that they prayed and worshipped for another six hours. During all of that time. Maybe, maybe five-hour sermons is what we do need to change things, right? But during that time of prayer and worship it says that they looked back and they remembered the whole story of God from, from creation to Abraham to Moses to the promised land. And they confessed God you've been faithful but our forefathers have been wicked and we recognize that we have that same thing in us and so we confess ourselves to you and at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9 it says that they actually make a recommitment to the Lord and they, and they formalize it by writing out a binding agreement saying God we vow we are going to obey your law. Even if our forefathers didn't, we are going to. Change is coming, right? You know, if you told me today, hey, Kirk, you know, I, I want to go um, revitalize a struggling church, and they're in a in a very impoverished area. I'm like, well, that sounds hard. How are you going to do it? So, well, we got this pastor, see, who um, he, he's a really savvy leader. Um, he, ha- he has all the resources he's going to need. Um, he 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 loves God. He, He knows God's word. No, by the way, he has the ear of the president. I'd be tempted to say, what are you waiting for? Right? Get on with it. But what this story proves is that the world's best resources and leadership talent can't tame the human heart. Nehemiah returned the very end of the book, he returned to King Artaxerxes for a little while... ...and, and then eventually returns to Jerusalem. And when he gets back, he finds that the people had just totally gone against the very thing that they committed to do. They had profaned the temple. They were, they were working on the Sabbath day. They, they, they had marri- Some of the men had married women who worshipped other gods, which is exactly what led King Solomon away from God. And so it, after all, I mean, you can imagine if you're Nehemiah, you're looking at this scene and you're thinking after all the blood, sweat, tears, and prayers, after all the political, economic, social, religious reform, None of it worked. And at the very end, like I said earlier, Nehemiah just goes B-A-N-A, bananas. And it says at the very end of it, he gets to the end of himself and he just snaps. And Nehemiah chapter 13 says he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. You're thinking, what? This is not the Nehemiah I remember from the beginning. <laughs> and at the end, the whole book ends with Nehemiah trying to clean things up again, and he says, "Remember me, oh my God, for good." In other words, he's saying, "God, can you at least see that I tried?" And as the reader, we're left with this unanswered question, this tension of, God, but why? If if, if a great, savvy, connected Nehemiah can't save Israel, then who can? And for anyone who, who is a perceptive reader of the Old Testament, we see that the story of Israel really is meant to be a picture of all of humanity. See, from the beginning... Human beings were created with great potential for good, but also with a dark rebellion in us as well. When God created the world from nothing, he created human beings to be his partners in his good creation. He put it this way, he said in in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. See, God said, unlike the rest of the animals, he says, I'm going to create these beings with skills like, like engineering, scientists, artists who study and create. I'm giving them abilities like leadership, teaching, caring for others, all as a part of his glorious creation mandate. See, the reason why human beings, we see so many human beings doing remarkable things, incredible things, is because God gave us that skill and creativity and placed it within us so that we could work for the good of this world and for the glory of God. That was the original mandate. But Genesis chapter 3 The enemy of God slithered into God's paradise and insinuated to the man and woman, Hey, you know, instead of being partners with God, perhaps it's time for you to be your own gods. Instead of doing all this on his terms, maybe it's time to do it on your own terms. And for the first time, thoughts of rebellion darkened their innocent minds. Sinful desire convinced them to act against their creator. And the effect of it all, it says, was to hide in fear of the God who gave them life. And when they wanted to do life on their own terms instead of God, God's good world of peace, joy, love, and justice became one of corruption and death. And the Bible's clear. It's not just the first man and woman Who abandon God's way. But that is the inheritance. Of every single human being. That we all find ourselves. With a heart that wants our way. Instead of his. But thank God. The story doesn't end at Genesis chapter 3. Because in his love, God began a rescue plan. And he really begins by, by selecting this group of people to be his. See, first he told, I'm going to show you something cool. At first he told Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars. I'm going to give you a land where, where, where you can flourish. I'm going to make from you a great nation. And he says, right in the beginning, he says, and through them, he says, God will bless all the families of the earth. Do you see it? He's saying, I want partners again. This is a return to a partnership with human beings. And and the Old Testament calls this partnership a covenant. A covenant. And Abraham's descendants grow into the people of Israel, whom God delivers from slavery in Egypt under Moses, and then he makes a covenant with them too. As his partners, he gives them his law, and he says, this is the way that you are to live. And he said, not only that, but, but you're to be my priest, my representatives upon this earth for all those who do not know me. But even though God gives them fertile land, peace under David, glory under Solomon, they kept turning away from him over and over and over and finally we get to the end of the old testament timeline which is the story of nehemiah and we see that though the israelites vow we're not going to be like our forefathers were what happens they go the same way yet again why why what is the problem here And see, this whole time the Bible is trying to make clear that the evil in this world is not just something out there. It's within us. There's a Russian novelist named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who spent about eight years in a Soviet forced labor camp called a gulag. This nasty place. And you would think that somebody in a nasty place like that would immediately get it set in their hearts that those people out there, they're the evil ones, those who caused me to be in here. But he says while he's sitting in that cell, he said, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And he says... We see that the roots of evil is not just out there. It's actually within us. There's something about our broken hearts that we cannot repair. Even with all the best that this world has to offer. And even though the Old Testament ends with this tension and this sadness and this feeling of hopelessness. As it ends, those who have been reading it carefully I hope you hear the echoes of prophets like Ezekiel when God said, I will give you a new heart and I will place a new spirit within you. So if the skilled, well-connected Nehemiah can't solve the human heart, who can? If the best land, circumstances, and leaders can't guarantee a world of peace, then, then, then who or what can? We see that there's no leader, there are no laws, there's no amount of money, there's no discovery of science who can rescue our own hearts and restore us to a partnership of peace with God. So who or what can? See, there's only one faithful man who can heal our heart problem. And he did. See, over and over again we see how God's people failed the covenant. But God promises to never abandon it. And 400 years after Nehemiah, we see six miles outside the city of Jerusalem, the tired city of Jerusalem, in the sleepy little town of Bethlehem comes a baby. And that baby's name means the Lord is salvation. And initially you think, this baby doesn't look like much. How can he solve anything? He doesn't have any political connections. He doesn't have any materialistic resources. He doesn't have a formal education to speak of. But he didn't need all that because this baby was called Emmanuel, God with us. For the first time in human history, the creator of the world came to be the true partner that we could not be in Genesis chapter 3. The, the, the king of the universe carried the blessings of Abraham as the truly faithful Israelite. The king of kings came from the, king, from the line of King David to bring true peace to the world, and with a pure heart, this God-man, Jesus, fulfilled the covenant of old in himself. But, as faithful as he was, what would he do with our rebellion? How would he come and deal with that? Because you know, if God is going to establish peace on this earth, he first has to establish Justice. And I would love to think that God's justice was really for the real sinners out there. The murderers, the abusers, the molesters, they're the ones who are going to get justice. But if I am honest, I realize that any sin is an offense to God and worthy of punishment. And if Jesus came to judge us as we deserve, who could possibly stand? Because I know all the ways I've sought to pilfer God's glory for myself. Just like Adam and Eve. But instead of coming with judgment, Jesus made a way to judge our rebellion while showing us mercy. Guys, please see this. This is just straight up gospel today, all right? That's all I got for you. Just straight up gospel. and That's all we need. Because, see, in in what I will call the divine exchange of my filth for his purity, Jesus came in this divinely orchestrated moment. When, when he, he let the arrogant powers of this world nail him to a cross reserved for criminals. And God placed my sin and your sin on his son. So that those who believe in him, scripture says, might be credited with his righteousness. Basically, Jesus took our insurmountable, unpayable tab and paid it with his blood. And the holy God... Israel's perfect son paid our debt to set us free from guilt. So in him, the price of sin was paid justice. And we were set free. Mercy. Do you see that? Do you see that? But see, that's only half the good news. That's only half. Because while, yes, we need forgiveness... We also need the ability to love God and live his way. Our debt may be paid, but how will we become the kind of partners upon this earth that God envisioned from the very beginning? See, as we allow the spirit of Jesus to work in us, we are becoming covenant partners with him. See, remember, the problem in Nehemiah's time and ours was not just that they needed to be forgiven. They needed a new heart. Some people think that Christianity is just about being forgiven and then just trying your best after that. Now, forgiveness is great. Like, it, it opens the way that we can have a relationship with God. But he also wanted to give us a new heart and the ability to love God and love others. And this is why the good news of Jesus isn't just about his death, but also resurrection. See, the full good news is that Jesus died to forgive us and to reconcile us to God. But he rose again to give us power over sin, darkness, and the power of death. What was impossible for every human being before was possible with our God. And we saw that the death itself could not contain the power of God. And because of Jesus' death, we have a relationship with God. But because of his life, we are equipped to be partners with him on this earth. But How? How does Jesus make that possible? Well, it's interesting to me that before the resurrected Jesus ascended to heaven, he, he appeared before his disciples. And he said to his disciples, the very verse we have on our back wall, he says, go make disciples of all nations. What do you hear in that? That's covenant partnership language. He says, you are to be my people across this earth. And he says at the end, he says, but lo, behold, he said, I'm going to be with you always. Well, what does that mean and how? And if we go to John chapter 20, it begins to clarify itself. When Jesus says to his disciples, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's that covenant partner language again. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I could speak for five hours alone on this one topic of life in the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, and when we were dead in our sin, incapable of changing or saving ourselves, God breathed his spirit. The, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which is, can also be translated as breath. And he breathed his spirit upon our lifeless souls to give us his life. And what I need us to see is that to partner with God, it begins and ends with learning to hand over control to His Spirit. I found myself, in so many ways, desperately wishing that I could change who I am, change aspects of this world, that I could could bring about the change that I wanted, and only end up frustrated. How many times, I can't tell you, that I've... (laughs) gone kicking and screaming in my own pity parties and quote-unquote venting sessions, right? You know what we call these things, right? Venting sessions that I've come to God and I've just been like, God, this is horrible. Why is it the world this way? Until eventually, like Nehemiah, I get to this place where I'm like, God, I'm done. I'm done trying so hard. And this thought, when I finally calm down, this quiet thought enters my mind. You done now? You ready to give me that pride, that fear? You ready to give me that lust, that arrogance? You ready to give that that anxiety over to me? See, so many times I've thought, God, I... This is my vision for my life, and this is what I want you to do. But truth is, our visions for what we should be or what this world should be can't even get close to comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed when Jesus returns to eradicate evil once and for all and eternally set up his throne. That he has a vision for my life and your life within his work on this earth, that is so much better than what any of us could have planned for ourselves. And not even death itself can stop what he wants to do in and through us. Nothing can stand in his way. All that he's asking of us is that we come to him with the faith and trust like a child and just give him control. When the spirit of the risen king lives in us, even death can stop his work through us. So listen, I want to try something. Just as I close up today, is Mark you can come on back, come on up here. I want to t- take a moment just for us as a church to be still and quiet. I don't I, I know we do this fairly often as a church. We mark out time to just be still and quiet where we are. I don't do that because I like to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> right? I do that because. The, the symptom of a heart that wants control is noise and busyness. But it's a heart that trusts God as one that learns to be still, quiet. So if you feel comfortable doing so, can you just, where you are, just close your eyes? No one's going to come mess with you. <laughs> no one's going to make you raise your hand or do anything, right? Like it, it, This is just you and God. Just take a moment to be with him. Psalm 46 says that though the mountains may be falling into the heart of the sea, though kingdoms around us may be tottering, the Lord says, stop striving. Be still. Know that I'm God. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, I want you to recognize for a moment that you've been completely, totally forgiven in Him. It's finished. There's nothing left for you to do. Also, if you belong to Christ, His Spirit lives within you. He's for you, not against you. He wants to lead and guide your life. Instead of that Anxious, angry, calculating self that struggles for control. And so I just want you to take a moment and ask God, say, God, is there anything that I'm desperately trying to control that you want me to hand over to you? You're not asking for God to show you everything that's wrong. (laughs) He knows the pace at which we can he can show us things. For some of you, he might be showing you areas of anger, anxiety, bitterness, or desperation. What's at the root of that? To say, Lord, what do you want me to hand over to you right now? And as he begins to show you things, just responds to the Spirit of God, I give you control. Show me how not to pick that back up again. <laughs> Holy Spirit, as you purify our hearts pray that you will confirm it with just the settling of your peace upon each of our hearts and our minds some of us in here we've been man we've been white knuckling it for two three four weeks maybe months so anxious a pit in our gut so wishing that we could change things not sure what how things are going to turn out if if, if it's all going to be okay I pray, Lord, that by your power, that you would remove that pit from people's gut right now. That nervous tick. Any manifestations of anger, anxiety, bitterness, desperation. We're able to hear you say, peace I give to you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Lord. Thank you for coming to repair our broken hearts. To not just repair it. Man, you gave us a new one. You gave us your spirit. Gives us the power and the ability to follow you. I pray that you strengthen our relationship with your spirit. And may we come to rest in the reality That if the spirit of God can defeat death, there's nothing that can stand in the way of what you want to do in and through us. You're simply waiting for us to say, all right, I'm done. I'm at the end of myself. Come have your way.